This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Zena Cumpston. Zena is a Barkindji researcher, writer, curator and storyteller. Zena speaks about Indigenous plant use and the deep cultural significance that plants have for Aboriginal people. She also talks about the problematic ways that Aboriginal knowledge is treated and included in Western science, academia and beyond. Zena's new book, co-authored with Leslie Head and Michael Sean Fletcher, is called Plants, Past, Present and Future. It's out through Thames and Hudson. I'm really, really pleased to be joined by Zena Cumpston, who is a Barkanji woman, and she's also a writer, researcher, curator, and storyteller. She's been doing such fantastic work around Indigenous plant uses, talking about Aboriginal perspectives on biodiversity. And Zena has put together this fantastic book with Leslie Head and Michael Sean Fletcher, which has been released as part of the First Knowledges series through Thames and Hudson. It's called Plants, Past, Present and Future. And um, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage from one of their books from this series. And it was just fascinating talking to them about fire in particular and how that's been used. And certainly plants play into that. But this particular book certainly has a a very different focus and it's also about the deep cultural significance of plants as well. So um, I'm welcoming onto the program Zena Cumpston. It's such a great pleasure to have you, Zena, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today about your book. Oh, pleasure, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. I really like your show. Oh, thank you. I've always been looking at your work and admiring it from afar and uh, as I was saying off air, you know, you've done some amazing projects in the city, the urban context when it comes to plants, and that's certainly something you address in this book. One great project which springs to mind initially is Emu Sky, which you were telling me, although the in-person physical exhibition, which was at the old quad at the University of Melbourne, has gone down, it's still, in fact, available online on the Cultural Commons website. Could you talk to us about some of the projects that you have been doing in recent years that certainly do have a connection back to this book and have a whole range of cultural and thematic streams that come back to plants? Yeah, sure. So um, as you just mentioned, the most recent project that um, I did with lots of other people was called Any Sky. And if people want to check it out, they can just go to anysky.culturalcommons.edu.au. And basically all of the artworks are still available to look at online and all of the stories that go with those artworks and actually lots of really amazing um, audio clips that we had throughout the show. I guess Amy Sky is a good one for me to start talking about because really it was the culmination of all of the work that I've been doing for the past five or so years, which has been looking at Aboriginal plant use um, from an Aboriginal perspective, but also specifically within urban areas because I was working for an entity called the Clean Air Urban Landscapes Hub at the University of Melbourne, which was a hub that was part of the National Environmental Science Program and involved um, lots of different scientists and people from across Australia at different universities. And what we were all really looking at was how we can make cities healthier places for all living things. That's the most basic way to kind of speak about it. And whilst I was working in academia, 
as you can probably tell from my book, um, for those that read it, I do have some fundamental problems with academia and how it works. And one of my imperatives as an Aboriginal woman within that work was to make sure that I made a lot of materials that brought lots of community members along with me to tell their stories and also that there were lasting legacies of sharing that knowledge. And so that's why I made a plant booklet quite a few years ago now, which was mostly just for schools and community groups, but seems to have been embraced by lots of people. It's not groundbreaking work. Basically, I just looked at about 50 or so different sources of knowledge about Aboriginal plant use and particularly looking at the plants that are here on Kulin Nations country, which actually have a lot of correlation with my country. So I'm Barkindji and I'm from Western New South Wales. So whilst we are all so diverse as peoples and as mobs, we do have some um, cultural connections across different regions and across the southeast. You can most certainly see that. You can see it in our art styles. But also we actually share quite a few plants and other really important um, cultural aspects because the country that we're on, um, whilst it does vary quite a bit, there are some similarities and that's why we end up with some of the same plants and practices. So I made that booklet and... For me, the best way to kind of finish with a bang because the hub was finishing was to put an exhibition on because I guess a lot of my work is at the intersection of arts and science because um, I do have an arts background from a long time ago. Um, I spent about 20 years working in the arts and then I walked away from it and did absolutely nothing within the arts. Uh, but I've sort of come back to it now and it's been a natural progression because I've realised all the many careers that I've had, they all have one thing in common and that is that I really love storytelling and I really love sharing knowledge with people and inviting people an opportunity to listen. And that's really what Emu Scribe was all about. Um, more than 30 Aboriginal community members came together to tell stories of country. And really it was asking the audience to fundamentally consider what we put at risk when Aboriginal people and knowledge are not in the driver's seat when it comes to the way that we manage country today. So they're sort of two projects, the booklet and this that I've done. And I guess it was just a really wonderful also circumstance that I was invited to write this book because it also is the culmination of lots and lots of work and reading and thinking that I've been doing for a while. And actually, I was writing this book and a lot of the dialogues that appear in Amy Sky in terms of the text labels and the stories that bring everyone together at exactly the same time. And I was also writing on the State of the Environment Report, which was put out by the government, federal government, meant to be in 2021, but um, was put out this year. And so I feel there's an, a really great conversation for me anyway. Um, other people might not notice it, but for me, there's a conversation happening between my work on the State of the Environment Report, what we managed to do with Emu Sky, which went out to a huge amount of people, including lots and lots of school students in Victoria. And then my work on this book as well. Um, they're a really lovely trio and I feel really proud of all of them. But um, also I realise how lucky I am to be given this voice at this time in my life and I don't take it lightly. Yeah, absolutely. And you do address one thing in the book that I found particularly interesting was your focus on collaboration and how much you are driven by that and enjoy the idea of working with many different people, you know, that it's not a, a solo project or, a you know, a solo pursuit. And it seems to come through in all of your work, but it's obviously gives it such strength because it's drawing on multiple perspectives and it's including so many different views and nations, First Nations in the conversations as well. 
could you talk to us about some of those concerns that you've had about academia that you do talk about in the book, some of the limitations that it's had and the ways that perhaps it has, across history, excluded uh, Aboriginal voices and Aboriginal traditional knowledge in, you know, scientific spheres? Yeah, sure. So I guess I could start by saying that I've left academia and I have no plans to go back anytime soon. And that's fundamentally because it took my health and was an incredible opportunity for me to bring together all of these people and all of these narratives, but in the end um, made me very, very unwell because I really believe that institutions today in Australia are so deeply colonial that they're not quite ready to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within them working safely. Mm. Having said that, I really respect and, and, you know, all power to all the mob who are working in these places because quite often you're the only person in a department or one of two or, you know, one person sometimes in whole organisations. And I think the idea that colonisation was something in the past is very prevalent. I see it in people's language all the time and the way that people talk about decolonising, like it can be just this kind of neat parcel of just these few things that you implement not a conversation that's going to take probably way more than the 200 plus years that this mess took to to be embedded. And I think, yeah, it's it's a hard one for me to talk about in a way, but I have written um, a whole chapter in the book about the way that science particularly has interacted with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples over time and how that really has a very thick residue that is still very prevalent today. So I guess one example that I could give that is a simple one, but I think effective is the fact that even though in universities today there's a massive push for Indigenous knowledge to be included and for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's voices and perspectives to be included, none of that is happening in a way that includes Aboriginal pedagogies or very little Mm -hmm. of it. So, for example, the way that our knowledge is held within our communities, whilst we're all extremely diverse, and please everyone know that I'm only speaking for myself as a Barkindji woman, lots of people may not agree with the things that I say, but for me, I really see that our knowledge is held in our communities. And a lot of the time, there's an idea in non-Indigenous realms that you can take this knowledge and just sort of sprinkle it on top, or that one person might be the conduit for you to open up all of that knowledge and be able to use it. Now, that word use, I hear a lot about Indigenous knowledge and take as well. And I'm really attuned to the language that people are utilising in in how they talk about Indigenous knowledge and why we need it and why it needs to be implemented. And it's a lot to do with, I think, this false perception that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and knowledge can reverse climate change. Mm. Um, And, you know, that's a really big statement and perhaps that's a bit silly to say, but... I do see that a lot of people are talking about it as though it's this panacea, but really what needs to happen if we do want to include Indigenous people and knowledge in a way that is meaningful and actually will have real-time outcomes that are very powerful is that we actually have to realise that this knowledge resides within communities, not individuals. And so really what needs to happen if we are going to find ways to respect and be able to incorporate this knowledge in a meaningful way is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities need to be in the driver's seat. We are so often consulted and we are so often in the back seat, especially when it comes to management of country and really the way wider Australian society even connects with and understands our knowledge. It's always this sort of little thing on the side. Mm. Um, but as Uncle Brendan Kennedy said in our book, you know, we're not the garnish. We're the main meal and we always have been. 
And so I really tried to highlight in the book ways in which institutions, for example, can't just throw open their doors and say, oh, no, you're allowed in here now without fundamentally changing their practices, but also the ways in which our knowledge don't work within Western systems. We are extremely collaborative as people, and guess what? That's really smart. Because if all of the people in your group who hold the knowledge are all together and something happens and they're all wiped out, that knowledge is wiped out. There's a reason why our knowledges have lasted longer than you know any other living culture's knowledges. And we know that through oral traditions that unfortunately we've had to hold up against Western science. But we know that some of the stories that people have on country in Australia are more than 30,000 years old because guess what? That colour didn't didn't happen in that star. You know, it happened 30,000 years ago. Or things that have happened on country are being calibrated and understood as these oral traditions actually have value. So I think our ways of doing things also need to be incorporated. And the only way to do that is actually empowering our communities. Mm. Um, and so everything that happens in the institution, especially at the uni, is completely alien to how we do things. It's this individual pursuit of excellence. If I was a smart academic and I wanted to, you know, really make a lot of money and have a very, very successful career, I would need to sort of focus on being the expert, the person at the pinnacle who everyone goes to. That's sort of, to me, my perception of how knowledge works within academia. Um, you are expected to be at the top. But in my culture, you know, if you walk into a room and tell people that you're an expert on something and you know everything, they would kill themselves laughing. It's such a ridiculous notion. And we all know that we have our own part of the story within our cultural systems and we're not supposed to know everything and nor do we have a right to. Mm. And so that's why it's been important to me to collaborate as much as possible because I was always trying, most of the time, not very successfully, to make the university find opportunities within my engagement with them where they could be reflexive and work out ways that they could actually make room in a way that that actually has you know tangible outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities. Sorry I've gone on a crazy tangent Amy I'm still recovering no. from COVID and my brain is <laughs> going oh. in circles at the moment. It makes total I hope sense. I answered your question. No you definitely oh, did <laughs> and it certainly is reflected in that chapter that you're talking about there you're talking about those words that are used like use, take. It is a very exploitative or extraction-based kind of perspective. And as you say, like an add-on to a Western system. It's just kind of here, we're just going to slip you into our existing way of doing things. All of what you've said makes absolute sense. And I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it to us in such a way. It must be such a huge burden really to have to carry that in a such a big institution and no doubt it's an experience that many First Nations peoples must have and I wanted to I guess yes. yeah draw out just a little bit more about that in particular because you you give some examples especially in the plant area where you say that too often you've been contacted by younger scholars wanting to do research in this plants area and that they've been told by experts that they were advised they're going to have to go up north to quote-unquote traditional people or they won't find anything of worth, anything new that hasn't, you know, been quote-unquote discovered yet. Uh, and, you know, these are people who perhaps are looking at communities not up north but in southeastern Australia, as you say. Could you share with us some of those thoughts and, you know, your particular area, as you say, has been about urban plants and how there's also an assumption that 
that knowledge is just lost, that clearly it's not. You know, could you talk about some of these misguided views about Aboriginal knowledge and how it's accessed or treated? Yeah, sure. So I wrote about that in the book because I wanted people to think about how we resource knowledge in communities. Mm. And so often, and I'm not saying that, um, you know, I'm not saying that too much research is happening up north. I would never say that because I know all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia really need resourcing to be able to um, really push back against the ongoing circumstance of colonisation. But for me, one thing that has just smacked me in the face nonstop for a really long time um, as a Southeastern Aboriginal woman is this idea that our culture is lost due to colonisation or that there's, you know, just this kind of salvage operation going on where we just have to, like, get what we can and try and save it. And unfortunately, that narrative sort of really exists, you know, as an idea that it's non-Aboriginal people who have to salvage this information and and try and hold it. And it really, uh, to me, it, like, harks back to dying race theories that were really prevalent in Australia and unfortunately have had catastrophic outcomes that continue to affect people today. This idea that we're not capable and robust as human beings and that idea of smoothing the dying pillow, which um, lots of people who've studied history will understand, but it was this idea that Aboriginal people basically were going to die out and so um, people just really had to salvage what they could while they could. And that's you know, it's caused so much damage, but I actually see that idea still. This idea that our culture is not strong. And when we sort of, I guess, have that false perception, that stereotype, that real Aboriginal people are out in the bush or in more traditional communities, i.e. communities that look traditional from those looking from the outside, more than the way we function here in the southeast, it really starts a cycle where people go, oh, well, there's nothing to see there, and then the resources don't go there, and then those communities then miss out because people are being directed to other areas. And I think more and more, thank goodness, people are understanding that everywhere in Australia, whether urban or remote, is an Aboriginal and Torres, or Torres Strait Islander place if it's up north um, mm. within that area. And there's just this idea, I think, that urban areas, culture is lost, but urban areas are still a cultural landscape because there is no place in Australia that does not belong to one or more groups who are still fighting for it, who are still fulfilling their cultural obligations in any way they can, despite the ongoing harm that colonisation continues to inflict. And so that work that I was doing, um, looking at plants in urban areas, was wonderful in lots of ways because I could see people's minds opening up about what, what an Aboriginal place is because no matter where you are in this place we call Australia today, you're on Aboriginal land and, and or Torres Strait Islander land. And I think that fundamental understanding is something that can be missing. And so it's wonderful to see some of the projects that are happening, you know, in more recent times where traditional owner groups in urban areas are actually having a greater voice. And people are understanding the work that they are doing to keep country healthy. Um, and there's examples of that most certainly on the country that I'm very lucky to live and work on, which is Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country, where Wurundjeri mob are doing some incredible projects, including being part of the Willapkin Birrung Murrun Act, which is a way of really looking at the Birrung from an Aboriginal perspective, 
not broken up into 11 or more different councils that can have all different ideas about how to manage that waterway and what's important in terms of not you know, letting it get polluted and become a sewer, but actually seeing it as a whole as a living being that needs to be protected with laws that are overarching the way that we have them in our society. We don't silo things and break them up into little groups. We understand that everything is very interconnected. And so it's been really good, the shifts that are happening, but I still see that it's not enough because I really um, I see that prevailing idea in in projects and in the way people talk and especially in academia about what's actually happening in urban areas and how important it is to to put resources into it and to collaborate with people um, as opposed to sort of this idea of being the great white academic hunter finding something new you know and so much there's so there's so many problematic ideas about being like I said before at the peak of your knowledge there's this idea that you you have to go up north and yeah it's it takes resources away from people basically and that's why it irks me more than anything but I think Mm. the other problem is is that in the urban environment it's very difficult for people to understand that it's a cultural landscape because there's all these concrete and buildings but people also have to understand that the people whose country all of those buildings are on still have their stories that have been passed down over thousands of generations and country is still alive. And no matter what you do to her and how much you go over her, she holds her stories. And also country holds all knowledge. So whilst these interventions to those outside of our culture might seem finite and, you know, utterly catastrophic, it's important for people to understand that these are still our cultural landscapes and those stories remain and they always will because they've been here too long to be wiped out in the last 200 and whatever years it is. So I really enjoyed telling stories of plants within an urban context, but also interacting with people who wanted to know more about Indigenous knowledge and especially young people. Like children can have an understanding about whose country they're on and the knowledge that's held by those mobs just by teaching them about different plants that that Aboriginal people have been interacting with over time and how absolutely innovative and clever we have been in that we can take things that are completely and utterly poisonous and take them through often, you know, several nuanced processes that we have worked out through the longest time imaginable of experimenting and watching and replicating, which is science, and be able to turn that resource into something that we can actually eat or use as medicine that's incredibly beneficial to our mobs. That's how we've stayed on country. We haven't had to leave when country is really, really contracted because we know that we can use seeds and we've developed grinding stones and even when all the animals go away and there's no water or, you know, um, we have an ice age, we're able to to stay on country. And that innovation is part of how we've all survived colonisation. And so it's really important for people to remember these words traditional are problematic because we are still practising our culture. It might not look like what you think it does. And plenty of things happen backstage as well and people need to understand that as well. So much we're expected to be extremely performative as Aboriginal people Mm. and get up and shake a leg. But there's plenty of things that we're doing within our communities, um, like I say, backstage, to keep things strong and to keep those opportunities to pass knowledge and to have intergenerational learning. So I think people's... I really talk about the architecture of people's perception and that's about, you know, what you've been taught is what you know and that's the lens through which you see the world. And that's really what Emu Sky was a lot to do with, was that 
we need to understand more, take time to educate ourselves and use some of the incredible resources that are all around us today, Aboriginal writers, filmmakers, speakers, to educate ourselves and to understand more about whose country we're on and their perspectives of country and to understand that we also all, black and white, have a responsibility to country and that's why I've really loved my work with plants. I think it brings people into a relationship with country and it excites them and they start looking at the world around them in a more... I hope, connected way because so often we're kind of floating a bit above country, especially in urban areas. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, it's important to connect because then we, when we connect properly and we learn more and we understand the place that we're on, the country that we're on, it means that we can fulfil our cultural, our custodial obligations. So even if you're not an Aboriginal person, you still have custodial obligations. This is your home. Yeah. Gosh, unfortunately, we've run out of time, Zena, but I am so grateful to you for taking the time to just take us through a little bit of what you cover in this book with Leslie and Michael Sean, because there's so much in here and it is eye-opening for me and I'm sure for many others, just as this conversation has been. And I really do hope that people can check out this book, Plants, and also Emu Sky Online, as well as the Indigenous Plant Use booklet that you put up there, which you can Google just that title and your name, Zena Cumston, and it comes up because it's so useful, as you've described, for communities. I'm so grateful for you chatting with us today. I hope I can check in with you again and talk about more of this because I feel like we've just started the conversation, um, but I'm really grateful to you, as I said, and thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's really been wonderful to hear your perspectives. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amy. And yeah, it's, it was incredible to collaborate with Michael Sean Fletcher and Leslie Head. So I hope people can check out the book. Thank for you sure. so much for having me. Oh, a pleasure, a pleasure. I've just been chatting with Zena Cumpston, Barkanji woman. Uh, she's a writer, researcher and curator. And you can check out her book with Leslie Head and Michael Sean Fletcher called Plants, Past, Present and Future, which is out now through Thames and Hudson. I can't recommend it enough. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.